0: an animal. Talks like an
1: Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Dr. Lisa Weesey, associate professor at Florida Atlantic University, FAU. Weesey is co-author of a study conducted recently at FAU, which found that interacting with a robotic pet can serve as a boon to the health of people with Alzheimer's disease or related dementias. The virtues appear to include reducing the patient's stress and dementia-related behaviors, while in answer to the inevitable related question, why not a real animal, it accomplishes these things while sidestepping the more complex and ongoing responsibilities of pet ownership. While the study may be small in scope, its implications may end up being enormous. For example, in the U.S., more than one in three older adults dies with Alzheimer's disease or related dementia, according to the study. The researchers found participants had improvements in multiple mood assessments and slight to moderate improvement in some categories of cognition assessments. We'll hear more about the study and its findings as well as its implications when I speak with Dr. Weesey in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's program, we'll remember Betty White, the incomparable actress and animal advocate who died Friday at age 99. We'll do so by having a brief chat with Tiffany Grunert. The president and CEO of Morris Animal Foundation, for which Betty White served as a trustee for 42 years, including a stint as president of the board. More on Betty White and her longtime huge significance in the animal world a bit later in today's show. Right now, though, let's discuss the study with Dr. Weesey, with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at WMNF.org, or texting 813-239-9663. 4330885 This is Dr. Lisa Weese on Talking Animals on WF. Good morning Dr. Weese.
2: Good morning. Thank you so much for having
1: me, Miss South Really thrilled to be here. Oh, uh, so happy to have you. And I'm sort of fascinated by the study. But and of course, we're going to delve into the details of that study in, in a moment or two. But I first think it'd be helpful to create some context that we can then place the study into. So let's start by finding out first just a little bit more about you. When did you become interested in nursing and what prompted that initial interest? I, it's
2: I became a nurse way back in the dark ages in 1978. So I've been around for a while. Yeah. Uh, but my interest in um, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, Uh, stemmed from my mother who developed it at age 91. Uh, She was a very proud, independent, um, uh, actually former owner of a coal mine in West Virginia. And her independence was was paramount to her. And I really wanted her to be able to, um, you know, age in place. And fortunately, she had an internist who recognized that it might be, uh, So she died about seven years later. And so I decided at that
1: Okay, I don't know if there's something going on with the phone system here at the station because we, uh, we're having some weird experiences, and uh, now we seem to have Dr. Weese periodically dropping out. Who, uh, hello? Hello, sorry. Uh, so we've lost you a couple times, Dr. Weese. I'm not quite sure why. I don't know if there's something in the station phone system or something on your end, but uh, please, keep, oh, uh, please, please okay. keep talking, and we'll just hope that we get you solidly here for the time being now and for the rest of the, the show.
2: Okay. Uh, So what I was saying was that that experience with uh, how important it was to detect Alzheimer's disease earlier for my mother led me to do that work in my own career. And that led me to the work with the student that we're talking about today. Uh, At the time, she was Dr. Brianna Strait. She got married uh, as LaRose now. And we wanted to find a way to support people with early to moderate dementia who were experiencing agitation and depression. Using pets, but you know it's it's not easy to ask someone who's already experienced a cognitive decline to try to manage a a live pet. So that's how we started talking about. I wonder if we could use some kind of a a robotic pet or you know a toy pet.
1: Yeah. Okay, well, you know what, Dr. Weezy, we have a whole half an hour or more to talk about this, so we kind of jumped way 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 ahead. I was still just going to ask you some questions about nursing and the, oh, the cool. Christian Lynn College of Nursing et cetera. So if we if you don't mind, we'll go we'll, we'll go back a little bit and then we'll pick up kind of where you left us there on the uh, on the study because that of course is the core of our conversation, but I was looking to get some context for that before we got into the specifics of the study if that's okay. Yeah. Sure. So when you say you started nursing in the dark ages, 1978, so nursing often runs in families. Does it run in yours? Is that one of the reasons that you uh, ended up becoming a nurse so many years ago?
2: No, it really isn't. Um, It was actually um, a suggestion of a very close friend of mine at the time. Uh, I was a secretary at Gallaudet College for the Deaf, Mm. um, and... And he said to me, "You know, Lisa, I think you would make a terrific nurse." Thinking so, for anyone out there who's listening, who's who run across someone who thinks they're compassionate or caring, they seem to really, you know, um, want to help others. You know, that this is a great career to think about. And so that led me on my journey, and I did it in steps. First, I, I received my associate degree of nursing from Shepherd University in West Virginia, where I'm from. And then I went on for my bachelor's degree and master's degree at the University of Virginia. And there I really um, studied rural health nursing to try to help people who are in rural settings. Mm. Um, and then you heard my story about Alzheimer's. But yeah, um, that's the great thing about nursing is you can always progress, you know, and eventually, of course, I got my doctorate, but... You know, there's so many different avenues that you can study as a nurse, you know, to help fit your lifestyle or your passion.
1: For sure. Well, yeah, and it is interesting to me because I think about a nurse, I have nothing but positive thoughts. My experiences with nurses have all been super positive. But I I guess I don't until I started thinking about speaking with you this morning. I don't think as much about a college of nursing and presumably that's for, as you kind of touched on a little bit providing training in various kinds of nursing care, and and I guess uh, specialties, really, right? Is that, is that kind of what, what, like, the Christian, yeah. the College of Nursing yeah, there? right.
2: Yeah. So if you look around the country, we have different levels of uh, how you can enter the nursing profession. Um, we have something called diploma programs where they're often offered through a hospital. They, they are not associated with the academic degree, but they do train you uh, to, so that you could sit for the national examination, which is called NCLEX. And then they have the associate degree program, which is typically somewhere around two years, and then the traditional four-year baccalaureate degree program. But if you have a degree in something else, such as a biology or you know health sciences or phys ed or something, yeah. uh, a lot of schools, including our own, offer an accelerated program where you can apply your credits and take a 12 to 15 month program to get your BSN and we we offer the the traditional undergraduate and the BSN at at our university which which others do as well and then you can get your masters and that's where you really specialize you can be anything from surgical nursing to holistic health which is something that that Christine Lynn College of Nursing really is, specializes in it is Caring-based and holistic nursing, um, you know, or other, many other specialties, teaching. Uh, it, it's really rather um, nice how you can think about what really excites you and then look for a master's in that program.
1: Yeah. And so then it's a- we have, oh, go ahead, sir. Yeah.
2: And then there's a doctoral level, which is a doctor nursing practice where you are more clinically based, but you have that designation gone through a lot and faster boards to be able to practice as a doctor of nursing Um, but we also have the phd level which is more geared toward teaching and research and that that's the designation that i have
1: so is that why typically someone would pursue a a phd in nurse is for the research slash teaching element of it
2: yes occasionally that's used to serve as a ceo uh, or a director of nursing in a mm. hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, it's recognized as a terminal degree, either of those, the DMP or the PhD. But um, typically, yes. And, and we have such a shortage of nurses, as you may know, and part of that is because we don't have enough phd prepare faculty to be able to teach nurses so
1: oh um, so is, that's you know, where the kind of where the bottleneck as it were is is that yeah there might be people very interested in learning about nursing or becoming nurses but there's not enough faculty to teach them
2: exactly mm. so for example at our college of nursing uh and you have schools of nursing which are kind of housed within another division of a college and then if you get enough funding and enough um, clout, you can become a college all by itself. So thankfully, uh, our benefactors, uh, Christine and e. we have this beautiful state-of-the-art college of nursing facility um, where we, you know, have all these different levels of programs you can enter. But, for example, the undergraduate program, we typically get about 1,200 applicants a year wow. for 120 to 200 positions.
1: Oh, my goodness.
2: You know, yeah, because we don't have enough
1: faculty. Now, presumably some of those 1,200 apply multiple places in addition to to the uh, Christine Lynn program. But yeah. uh, but it sounds like almost anywhere for the same kind of reasons, um, there just isn't going to be enough that's, programs active with with enough faculty to, to handle the people interested wherever they might be in learning. That's right. Nursing. Yeah. So, what can be done about that? Is there? Is it just, um, you know, one of those things that we just kind of have to live with for now until uh, there's just more faculty that are that are trained or interested in pursuing that direction?
2: Well, uh, that's a great question. You know, one of the things that more and more universities are doing is offering stipends to students. Um, I was a recipient of one of those stipends to pay for your. Um, tuition while you get your advanced degrees in PhD programs. Um, and, you know, going stepwise is always helpful. You know, so just starting out, going for that um, state college, that community college assisted degree um, to just get your foot in the door because also um, there are places, uh, workplaces that will help. Pay for your tuition while you get a bachelor's degree, or perhaps even a master's. Um, but it there it is an issue that that you know professional nursing is always struggling with. How how can we get more nurses trained? Our college just recently launched a hugely successful program for nurses who are already working to go back part time to get advanced degrees, and you know hopefully other uh, schools around the country uh, are doing that as well.
1: Yeah, it's just, uh, we'll we'll move on in a moment, but I just, it's just a shame as I hear some of the the details about this, that you hear all the time about like COVID issues and there's just not enough uh, doctors and nurses and people to care for people who have COVID. And yet, meanwhile, there's people who are eagerly awaiting opportunities to learn to be helpful in those situations. And there's just like, sounds like an inherent roadblock at the moment.
2: That's right. Right. It is. And uh-huh. with COVID, it's even worse. And the nurses that we do have are just, you know, they're so tired and and exhausted. Yeah. You know, it's it's just really difficult. It it would be so much easier if um I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but you know, people would be vaccinated, you know, because that's the large percentage of people that the nurses are having to care for now is people who are not vaccinated.
1: And then I guess now it's, it's as much, the, fundamentally, of course, people should be vaccinated. And I think we can't say that. it should say that. Uh, but then also, of course, now uh, some people have stopped short of getting their booster, which also has proven to be kind of pivotal in, in right. sort of battling this, uh, especially this new variant that right. seems to be a- Right. Raging. So, uh, this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Lisa Wiese, Associate Professor at Florida Atlantic University, FAU, co-author of a study conducted recently at FAU, which found that interacting with a robotic pet can serve as a boon to the health of people with Alzheimer's disease or related dementia. If you'd like to ask Dr. Wiese a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email DJ at WNF.org or text 813 433 85 I will mention that at least earlier we seem to be having a little bit of phone trouble so you may want to try to email or text your question just so we can be sure to include you if you are interested in asking a doctor we see a question or, or offering a comment so okay so let's let's kind of swing back to kind of where we were so partly very much on a family basis with your mom's experience with Alzheimer's that sort of spurred your own interest in pursuing that academically and otherwise
2: that's right and, and it's wonderful because at our college we have you know, faculty in place who do a lot of work with cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. So I was mentored all along my journey by Dr. Christine Williams and others uh, to be able to successfully embark on a on a career trying to increase awareness, education, and prevention of uh, alzheimer's disease and related dementia, and to what
1: extent does alzheimer's scare you either professionally or personally just given what you've learned and of course having your own family experience with your mother having alzheimer's i mean how does that affect you in your day-to-day both professional and personal lives
2: That, that that's a wonderful question um because it does scare me because you know, we, we are living longer now, and Alzheimer's disease is age-related to the point of where per one out of two persons after age 85 are going to develop Alzheimer's disease or related dementia. But we have found that there are many things that you can do to help uh, slow down or even prevent the onset of Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, I'm trying very hard to um, not only take care of myself, but also educate others about ways to diminish that risk because I think everyone probably knows someone who has had Alzheimer's or had to care with somebody for Alzheimer's disease or another dementia. And it's the hardest job in the world as a caregiver yeah. to, um, you know, to, to, to do that. And if you are just getting more physical activity, exercise, if you're sleeping at least seven, eight hours a day on an arrested you're eating green vegetables, I mean, those are three simple things out of the 15 or so actions that you can do to try to diminish your risk.
1: That's interesting. And, and again, that's probably not widely known or only people that right. probably are interested inherently in Alzheimer's or other dementias would necessarily seek out the information that could, of course, help them keep those conditions at bay or minimize them.
2: Right.
1: So for what it's worth, I'm going to read just just in the interest of another point of view this uh Uh, text just came in and said the nursing shortage is by design not from lack of educators you don't need a phd to teach nurses galen and spc are cranking out graduates the hospitals don't want to hire or pay them so sounds like somebody with some specific reference point or whatever but it sounds like uh, not necessarily uh, a point of view similar to what you uh, had stated dr Weesey. oh yeah
2: no i mean i agree with that statement um you know our state colleges You just need a master's degree to be able to teach nursing. Um, At the university level, you need a Ph.D. And there are good diploma programs there that will, will, as I mentioned, will train nurses so they can pass forward. But as the majority of people do seek training at, you know, recognized, accredited, state college and university, you do need to have an advanced degree.
1: Yeah, I think this person's because they just sent a follow-up text, the business model of the hospital system is what's killing the profession, and uh, it's absurd how these hospital yeah. systems treat nurses. So it sounds like that's kind of as much sure. their sort of focus as the level of educational... Of the people instructing these nurses. But let's swing back to kind of our, the focus for our conversation today. So, indeed, tell me about the genesis of the study that, that primarily did bring us here today Alzheimer's patients interacting with robotic pets and, and being helped by those interactions. Guide me through how that idea unfolded. I mean, you're interested in oh, right. Alzheimer's, uh, obviously, professionally and personally, as we've established, but how did this specific study become something that you were interested in pursuing along with your? your colleague that uh, that conducted the study with you.
2: Well, thank you for that. Um, so, at our university, uh, Dr. Cheryl krause and Dr. Beth Pat, they work with um, uh, veterans and uh, pets, you know, dogs to help them uh, process through uh, you know, stress and um, depression and feelings of, you know, uh, loss of self-worth and things like that. And uh, they're friends of mine as well as colleagues, and we've talked a lot about what a difference it makes to have an animal as far as improving emotion and mood and decreasing, uh, you know, agitation and depression. And my student, uh, who was, is interested as well in pets, but also in helping older adults, uh, came to me and said, I wonder if there's a way that we could somehow... You know, marry that, that wonderful effect that animals have, um, with people who are experiencing cognitive decline because I've seen the agitation and the depression that they have. Yeah. And so, um, I told Brianna that in Japan they had developed the, um, the seal, this robotic seal called PARO, P A R O. Um, and they'd had wonderful success with doing that, um, with improving people's mood and emotions using PARO, but that the PARO pet, at the time, it was costing five thousand dollars. Wow. So, I that's yeah. So we talked about a way to maybe order some of these, you know, toy pets online and test them out and see if any money might be realistic. And we we ordered three, um, and we settled on one that runs about one hundred and ten dollars, and we just had. Uh, right away, very good feelings when we were seeing the animal move and how it sounded and how it interacted. And so then we decided to try it out at our memory and wellness center with our patients that attend there.
1: So there were initially three of those cats?
2: Yeah, so there are three different animals. We tried one dog and two cats. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, uh, from different companies. And the company that we um, selected, uh, Joy for All, Ageless Innovation. They're, they have both dogs and cats, but we thought the cat was cuter. Okay. And then for the study, we didn't want to have somebody wishing they had had a dog or pet. Um, you right. know, we only had so much funding, so we stayed with the cat.
1: I got you. So let's talk a little bit about the structure and the process of the study. This might be where I read at least some of Dr. Stray, who was your student and colleague, really, on the study. Uh, maybe I'll read some of the statement that she sent because, unfortunately, she couldn't uh, – she wasn't – able to join us today in this conversation. So um, she wrote here, the, the visits initially started out with each participant going around the room stating if they owned a pet in the past and saying a memory about... Staff, what's that, sorry? Yeah,
2: the memory and wellness. Yes, that's a span a facility that is run by our College of Nursing. Um, the Chris Anne Green... Memory and wellness centers. So it's both a day center and a clinic uh, where we do diagnosis and assessment of people experiencing cognitive decline. But we went to the staff on the day center side and told them our idea and they thought it was terrific. So we asked them to help us select people who might be willing to um, sit down with a, a robotic cat for an hour and interact with it. And then we would um, take measures, surveys, you know, before, during, and after the intervention regarding their mood, emotion, um, and, and, and depression scores. We also evaluated their mini mental state exam, which is a basic, um, cognitive assessment that the many people use and the Memory Wellness Center uses, um, to see if it would make a difference, you know, by interacting with these, um, you know, two or three times a week. For 12 weeks and we asked the family members you know we were given 15 names 12 of the family members agreed to the study we also asked the persons, you know who, who were going to be actually involved with the cast the participants um you know we would tell them about the study and ask if they agreed that's called a sense um, so that you know we, we weren't doing anything that nobody was in agreement with sure and uh, yeah and then we, uh, what we did is during the day we would take them out of a another activity that was scheduled, you know, for that time at the memory and wellness center, say a, a, you know, a music time or talk with someone, you know, talking about current events or something, and we would have them in a separate room with the cat.
1: So then they would again just want to get back. Briefly, at least to the statement that um, that Dr. Strait had provided just because she couldn't be with us uh, uh, for the live interview. um, So she wrote, the visits initially start out with each participant going around the room stating if they owned a pet in the past and saying a memory uh, about their pet while holding the cat, meaning the robotic cat in this case. One participant said, I have a companion again. Another said to the cat, I like you very much. Do you want to go home with me, we could be happy together and have a good time. So then she's saying, we asked how participants felt with the cat. They stated they felt happy and that the cat made them feel good. At the end of one visit, a participant asked, when should we be getting her cat back? She even told other clients at the center who were not part of the study about her cat and said she would introduce them to the cat next time. Um, And then after Mm -hmm. the first, uh, I guess, therapeutic interactive pet session, TIP, uh, she stated, "This was the best day ever." So it sounds like not only did the people that you, of course, asked if they wanted to participate to make sure they were comfortable and fully interested in participating, but it sounds like the, almost from from the first session there was great enthusiasm for the cats and their interactions with the cats.
2: That's right, and and we thought maybe it would wear off a little bit, um, but of course that's the interesting thing about you know Alzheimer's disease is you have short term memory loss, so you know you may have been petting the cat for twenty minutes. But every time you pet the cat and it did something different, like raised its paw or purred or turned over on its belly, it was almost as if it was doing it for the first time, and if it was responding to what the person was saying or doing, and so it created this connection where the the participant was, you know, giving something and getting something back in return, and to see their faces light up uh, and to see their smiles and their laughter. And they would even talk to the person sitting next to them about their cat. So people who weren't saying anything initially, you know, would just sit there on the couch. All of a sudden, they were waking up, so to speak, and and becoming engaged with this cat. Um, We've seen similar things with music therapy, uh, you know, where they'll hear a song and all of a sudden from sitting, they'll start singing and and being engaged and, uh, you know... um, Dr. Strait LaRose included in her paper about how when they combined the two with the pat, pet and playing music, that was also really successful because they would be singing to their cat. <laughs> so um, it was it was really wonderful process and, to see.
1: And that makes me wonder, Dr. Wiese, is how much does either the cat situation or, you know, this isn't the focus at the moment of our conversation, but still the music situation, how much of that seems to be memories that they had like i'm sure i'm gonna guess at least that the music that they responded to most was music that they were familiar with and maybe had heard earlier in their life and meant something to them and i'm gonna guess similarly the, the experience with the cat was probably they were probably cat people or at least pet people previously and this kind of brought back to them some really great memories and feelings that they'd had earlier in their life with pets
2: Yes, indeed. We do know that that, that's true, you know, because they would talk about their previous pets or cats. Some of them uh, named their cats. So the very first day, Brianna had uh, each person name their cat, and she made a collar for them with a cat's name on it and put it on there. Mm. Um, And uh, some of them talked about how it was like their previous pet. One of them named it after their husband. Wow, Um, that's interesting. yeah, Yeah, yeah. And another, um, because they had positive vibes and they wanted to, you know, think of something nice. Um, and another said they'd never had it, a pet, but they always wanted one. Hmm. Yes. And, yeah, and, you know, another um, uh, benefit we saw of this is um, after the after the study was over, uh, we donated uh, two cats to the center in case they felt that it was coming handy later on here or there with someone. And... Uh, we had someone who uh, would become agitated and wanting to leave, and the staff would go get this cat and just sit with them in the room, and they would interact with the cat, and it would totally deflect them, and they would, you know, not be educated trying to leave anymore. And, uh, yeah, so it was neat. You know, so all of that led us to want to try to get the word out for people at home, you know, who are you know, experiencing trying to care for someone with a dementia. That this, you know, depending on their level, you know, of cognitive decline, this might be a good option for them. And we actually had a student who did do this virtually at home, uh, which we haven't published that yet. But um, she graduated last um, fall, and it was it was really exciting to see that we had similar good responses. Even in the home setting, from people using these
1: cats. So when you say virtually at home, with the subjects in this case were were at home, were the robotic cats with them, or yes, okay,
2: yes. Yeah. So we mailed the cats to their home, and we also mailed the surveys for the caregiver to complete. So we had a huge response to that. Um, uh, and unfortunately, because of our funding, we had to limit it again to 12 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eight eight people were able to complete the whole study. But, you know, I still get emails every once in a while saying, you know, my mom still loves her cat. She takes it to bed with her. You know, we had to, to move across country, and that cat was a godsend in the car. You know, things like that.
1: Wow. So it really did tap something profound in most of the subject, it sounds like.
2: That's right. That's right. And and I'm decline. sure there's some
1: people listening who wonder why the cats are robots versus real cats. Well, I, I think I w- would be able to answer that, but maybe you could explain why.
2: Yes. So, you know, someone with cognitive decline, if, um, you know, their responsibility for themselves is, is such an issue, you know, yeah. just, um, you know, progressing to where they're not quite able to manage their own activities of daily living. So to ask them to care for a pet, um, you know, is is just another burden. Yeah. And, and it ends up becoming the burden on the caregiver as well. Right. You right. know, and so as much as we love live animals, I have my own, um, you know, with someone's cognitive decline, it becomes a different issue. And
1: just on that note, this just pops into my head kind of, I don't know to what extent it's possible to extrapolate from the study's findings, but... Let's say there's someone that's maybe in the very earliest signs of of dementia. Would they get still some benefit? Like they're living at home and, and things, uh, and they they happen to be a, a, a household that does have pets. Would they get some benefit that's that's parallel to some of what the findings of the study have shown uh, to be still caring for? For their cats and or dogs, or whatever they, they happen to have in the household, when they're still early in the thing, so it's not a burden to care for them, but they might get some of the same virtues that the subjects in the study have gotten? Dr. Weesey? Oh, geez. We've had some tricky problems with the phone. I'm going to see if she does come back because she has returned here once or twice. Okay. Well, uh, this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm going to see if we can uh, get her back. The, the lion still looks engaged, but unfortunately I do not... Uh, here, Dr. Weesey.
2: That, that makes we you go. feel more positive. Yeah. Yeah. So, Again,
1: we, you know, we, we, lost, we lost you for a bit there. I'm not sure what's happening. I'm so sorry about this. But, uh, oh, what?
2: that's okay. But yes, the answer to answer your question, definitely live animals, as long as you're able, is a wonderful thing. You right. Know, there's so many good positives to that.
1: Right, so I guess my my more specific question, which you probably did answer when we couldn't hear you, I'm sorry about that again, is that would they get benefits that are similar, if not mirroring what the the subject of the study got if they're early enough and where where the, the care of the animal isn't a burden, but they're still getting the connection with the animal and some of the same things? Exactly. Yeah, okay, cool. Exactly. So we've touched on them along the way here and there, but maybe you could just kind of summarize since we're sort of nearing the end of our time here, uh, we're not luckily. we still have a few more minutes to cover some more, but maybe you could just discuss uh, just the, the key findings of, of the study. Uh, I know, again, as you've said, the, the study necessarily for budget reasons and, and the expense of the, the robotic hats, et cetera, was, was a smaller study than some, but it still seems like there's some super important findings that have come from this. Could you summarize some of the, the ones that, that are most essential in your view?
2: Yes, thank you. So, first of all, uh, the robotic cats, um, you know, $110 is nothing to sneeze at, but if you look at the benefit over time of providing someone with a cat um, like this, as far as freeing up the caregiver, uh, you know, to be able to, you know, fix that dinner or sit down and read the paper for a minute, um, you know, their value is incalculable, I believe, because we have shown, you know, through scientific research that, it will improve a person's emotions and their mood and, uh, and decrease their depression. And also, even, even in 12 weeks, we were able to show that it improved their cognitive score.
1: And I think um, that's. And, so, sorry to interrupt, Dr. Reese, but I was just going to say no, no, go ahead. I mean, I think these are all important, but, but that I, I thought was particularly significant that, that the cognition showed improvement from the, the interactions with the cats.
2: Yes, we were not expecting that because it was such a short amount of time. And yeah, it's usually hard to to actually improve on a cognitive score. You know, most we normally look for is to maintain. Yeah, uh, and it may have had something to do with the endorphins that were raised, and you know the positive levels of neurotransmitters that were helping to make better connections there. And um, now, in, in the state of Florida, the Department of Elder Affairs um, offers. The robotic cats. If you write to them and um, tell them why you need it, and it would be neat to see if other state uh, department of elder affairs would adopt the same program uh, because they've handed out over 300 pets. You know, oh wow! People. Well, and, and you know you're you're helping a stress of not just a participant but the caregiver.
1: For sure. So. Do you anticipate, based on these findings, and with as many robotic cats and other animals as it turns out there are out there, returning to do a larger scale study that looks at some of the same things, but may look at some other things, uh, but but either way would be a larger sampling of, of subjects?
2: Yes, definitely. That would, that would be really ideal. Um, there have been other studies where these robotic cats have been used in nursing homes, mm. uh, but not not in, in so much in day centers and definitely not at home. Uh, but my focus is um, in a different area, so I need a student who is willing to take this on, and then we could get, we could apply for bigger funding. But I do think that uh, there's been so much interest generated in this, it would certainly be a worthwhile thing to do. I appreciate you uh, bringing that up.
1: Yeah. And so, well, then how would you assess kind of the key? implications in the meantime of the study that has been done while there may or may not be a a larger one undertaken at some point soon as you say depending on a student that could work with you and and kind of oversee that but uh seems like the implications are significant
2: right and i think one of the implications is that it doesn't have to be nurses you know it could be anyone who's working with older adults to take on a project like this yeah um you know so you know that would be um, you know, someone else who's listening, you want it to, to try to implement, a, you know, apply for funding, write a proposal and do this on a larger scale. You know, I'd be happy to, to share with them anything that we know about this, to just try to disseminate it more widely and, and make this happen
1: yeah that's a good point. I mean, you talked early on about nursing and of course your own background and and that's the college that this uh study was undertaken but in some ways to to carry out the project nursing really as you as you say this now it occurs to me it, w- it was somewhat incidental so so others could ta- undertake it in other academic settings or elsewhere um and add another element or just do a larger uh number of subjects and see what they found
2: there exactly. So, you know, I think of social workers and physical therapists, you know, people who uh, often work with um, older adults. Yeah. And uh, you know, gerontologists, you know, our own nurse practitioners uh, who were involved, of course, in this study. But, you know, it's it's a multidisciplinary um, approach, you know, if you think about it, you know, because you're dealing with um, the homesteading or or a care setting, you're dealing with emotions, you're dealing with family.
1: Yeah.
0: You know,
2: there, there are many different avenues to sure. try to, to do this on a larger scale.
1: Yeah. Well, we have just about reached the end of our time, Dr. Weesey. We're speaking with Dr. Lisa Weesey. She's an associate professor at Florida Atlantic University and directly affiliated, of course, there with the Christine E. Lynn College of Nursing, and that's where the study was conducted. And um, for each to search for some of the... Uh, elements of the study to find out more if you'd like or again if you have interest maybe in pursuing a, a comparable study using some of this study as a, as a framework or jumping off point. it sounds like Dr. Weese is more than happy to uh, help in that regard
2: Absolutely
1: Alright Dr. Weese, and also I th- since I mentioned in an email uh, yesterday that uh, we're going to be in a moment um, saluting and, and remembering uh, Betty White just thought before we say goodbye today to you if there's anything you'd like to say about Betty White
2: Oh my goodness! You know she's one of my heroes. You know just to show what a difference a life can make. Um, you know and being so vibrant and you know, uh, be, recognizing the value of of what animals can do in someone's life. And you know, I she's just a bright light that has gone out. I'm so sad that she did not see her 100th birthday.
1: So close, um, too. So close. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, boy, she's really uh, made the world a better place with everything she's done.
1: That's for sure. And we do have, which we'll get into when we speak with uh, Tiffany uh, Gruner in just a moment, uh, an idea or two about how to help celebrate Betty White's actual birthday, which is coming right up and and salute her work on behalf of animals. But meanwhile, I want to thank you, Dr. Weesey, for joining us today on Talking Animals. Uh, The study, I think, is really fascinating and super encouraging. And again, implications are really important. And uh, we'll hope that either you with... uh, some uh, great student and or others uh, take take this kind of basic study and, and expand on it and uh, see where where it can lead us. So thank you again for joining us today on Talking Animals.
2: Thank you so much. It's been an honor and pleasure. Thank you, Mrs. Joss, for all you do.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye-bye.
2: Okay, take care. Bye.
1: Bye-bye. Okay, in a moment, I'll speak with Tiffany Grunert, who leads the Morris Animal Foundation with a great, and now sadly late, Betty White was a trustee for more than 40 years. We'll ask Tiffany to offer a view of the contribution Betty made to the world of animals over a lifetime of being an animal lover and advocate. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with something influenced by our discussion of robotic cats, although this involves real cats, and many of them. Here's Paula Poundstone with a piece called 12 Cats in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF.
3: I have... Uh... We, well, we, have, uh, we just got three new
2: kittens, because we had kind of a shortage there for a while. <laughs> we have 12 cats. Um, yeah, I know, it's a lot of cats. I, it is. And it's just as disgusting as you might think it would be.
3: <laughs> I sift all day long.
1: It's the first thing I do in the morning and the last thing I do at night, and I do it many times in between.
2: And sometimes I'm not even at home, and I just kind of have like a residual. <laughs> People think it's Parkinson's. I said, no, 12 cats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of cats.
1: That was Paul Poundstone in today's Comedy Corner with a piece entitled 12 cats taken from her album i heart jokes Paula tells them in maine now it's time to speak with tiffany grunert head of the morris animal foundation paying tribute to betty white here is tiffany grunert on talking animals on wmf good morning tiffany
3: good morning how are you
1: i'm so good thank you so much for joining us today on talking animals first let me just ask you to briefly describe the morris animal foundation and its uh, primary mission
3: I've we were founded in 1948. We're headquartered right here in Denver, Colorado, and we work every day to find solutions to health problems for all animals everywhere. So dogs, cats, horses, and wildlife. We fund scientists all around the world to advance science and help animals live longer, healthier lives. Uh, to date, we've invested more than $142 million in close to 3,000 studies We're looking at preventatives and diagnostic tools, new drugs and surgical techniques and treatments, um, all again for the sake of the animal to improve their health.
1: Well, that sounds like a pretty noble mission and sounds like you guys have been doing it uh, quite some time. And how long was Betty White involved with the organization?
3: She was with us for more than 50 years. She started as a trustee in 1971 Mm. and served as the mistress of ceremonies and uh, she was really dedicated to canines and wildlife. And so... She has been with us or had been with us for a very long time, and really, she helped shape the foundation into what it is today.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, there was one part of that lengthy stint where she was, I think, president of the board?
3: That's correct. She was president of the board. Uh, She also really championed our first and only capital campaign, which really helped uh, grow the endowment that pays for our administrative costs. This allows us as a foundation to put about 90 percent of all the funds we raised back directly into research to help the animals. So she really helped change the trajectory of the foundation uh, to the organization that it is today.
1: Wow, yeah, that's a pretty high percentage. That's great. So when it comes to Betty White's work on behalf of animals, what's the first thing you think of when you think of Betty White?
3: You know, she was such a charismatic individual. She was our spokesperson. I had the pleasure of meeting her in person, and she told me that she envied me and the job that I had, that I got to work for animals full-time while she had to work in show business to do it. (laughs) So truly, you know, she was just such a character, so funny and full of life. And worked so hard uh, to help animals for many organizations, uh, but one of her favorites was uh, Morris Animal Foundation. We were so fortunate to have her as a trustee, as a donor, spokesperson, and a longtime supporter. Truly, she has improved the lives of animals worldwide.
1: For sure. And that's funny you would say that uh, that she said that she envied you when she had to because uh, you got to work on animals full time and she had to go back and do acting on you know sitcoms or showbiz or whatever. And part of the, the modesty that also, I think, kind of typified her. I mean, there's been so many stories that have surfaced in the wake of her death. And and one of those that that reminds me of is that somebody talked about one day they were just going to their grocery store and uh, there were people tabling out front, which is not uncommon but as they got closer and closer, they saw that what was uncommon was that one of the three women tabling was Betty White. So, I mean, you just think, I mean, there's obviously she's you know super high profile and you know on TV and there's so many other things she could have done, but the fact that she also felt like, well, no, I'll, I'll sit here and table for a while and help get that petition signed or whatever it is they were specifically doing that afternoon. I thought, that's really impressive on top of all the other great Betty White stories. Is there a, an animal story or two about Betty that, that you know of that maybe aren't as commonly known
3: yeah she did so much to help the foundation and you know she really just volunteered her time so many celebrities now are typically paid celebrities for their time and I certainly understand that but she truly did everything uh, as a a volunteer and was so active and hands-on so the story you're talking about is exactly Betty she was uh, hands-on. She really worked fundraising um, for the foundation specifically. She would reach out to other um, actors and actresses uh, to get them more involved. Again, I don't know too many people who serve as spokesperson for a nonprofit entity um, and are not reimbursed in some fashion, and she did it all out of the goodness of her heart. You know, if you read the Morris Animal Foundation history books, of course, this was before my time, but um, when her husband, Alan, passed away, she was back working and volunteering for the foundation and being spokesperson at events just a few weeks after that. She just was so dedicated. And I think it really shows both her passion, tenacity, and, you know, just what a wonderful person that she was. For sure. And uh,
1: another story that uh, that and uh, Post, I think, ran yesterday that I thought, well, this has more to do with being someone who was in show business and had some means so she could do this. But again, I think it was very low key. I don't know if it was reported before her death or if just maybe obviously a few people directly that were involved knew. But apparently after Katrina devastated New Orleans and beyond, Betty paid for a private plane to relocate otters and penguins, maybe other animals as well, from the Audubon Aquarium of the Americas there in New Orleans. Because otherwise there was no way to like properly care for them in the wake of the, the devastation. So that's another side of, like, she had the means to solve a major problem, and she did it. But I think, again, typically very quiet, very understated. And, again, I think other than the people directly involved, no one probably knew about this until just recently.
3: Yeah, she was very, uh, you know, just did this out of a noble cause. It wasn't about her at all. It was about helping animals and everything that she did, I think, was like that. Yeah. And, you know, she also brought humor to serious topics, you know, here at the foundation, if you look through the board minutes uh, back in the day, the foundation was looking at different birth control methods for dogs and cats. And, you know, here everyone is in the heat of this, like, oh, what can we do and how can we improve this? Um, and, you know, she chimes in, well, if we could just teach them to shake their head no. <laughs> <You> <laughs>
2: That's
3: know, great. So she was, yeah. Such a character.
1: Yeah, no, that sounds very much like Betty White. So uh, we're sort of near the end of our time here, Tiffany. But one thing that uh, people have noted, obviously, is that she would have turned 100 very soon, January 17th. So she was so close from uh, turning 100. The one idea I have seen kind of flying around online is people suggesting that on her birthday, again, January 17th, that everyone should just pick a local rescue or animal shelter and make a modest donation, maybe as, even as little as five bucks, obviously more if you can swing it, in Betty's name and just uh, as a, as kind of a great tribute to her on her 100th birthday. So I think um, as we uh, finish up our conversation here today, that might be a, a great suggestion to uh, for people to, to to take on and, and uh, repeat to others and uh, What a great way to salute and celebrate Betty White.
3: Oh, I agree. I think it's a wonderful way to do that. And Kristen Bell and Jamie Lee Curtis recently tweeted uh, suggesting that folks consider Morris Animal Foundation in that mix. And certainly if that's something that people are interested in, uh, they can find us at morrisanimalfoundation.org. And again, everything that we do is for the sake of the animals to improve their health and lives.
1: That's so great. Well, Tiffany, thank you for taking a few minutes to uh, remember Betty. And, uh, and again, there was such a long, great history there uh, with uh, with your organization and with Betty. And, and as there were so many, uh, any anything, anything concerned with the animals seemed to have some kind of relationship with Betty on some level. But this was a really long, serious relationship that you guys had. So thank you for taking the time to join us and talk a little bit about Betty White.
3: Thank you. And thank you for honoring her legacy. Thank you.
1: For sure. Bye-bye. Bye. Coming up a bit later on WMF, the music kicks back in with Scott Elliott from noon to 3 p.m., a glorious three hours of music, followed by Robin Hooper with another three hours of music. And we just keep the music coming as we roll into our block of Latin programming and beyond. We have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Hope you'll join me next Wednesday for another edition of the show. Also, you'll visit talkinganimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast. Apple Podcasts are available there, too, as well as other podcast platforms. There are also links to our Facebook page, Instagram page, Twitter feed, and more. And you can also uh, subscribe to our newsletter there to find out about our guests a couple days beforehand and other news from the Talking Animals world. That's all at TalkingAnimals.net. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind animals, be kind others, be kind to yourself. This is Talking Animals on WMNF, Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Weeki, Wachee, and beyond. Scott Elliott is up next, the great Scott Elliott, after a few updates from NPR News. Thanks so much to Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa.